All right, I'm Jack Donovan for PH2T3R, Patera, the Journal of Solar Culture. And I'm here in Ireland. We would have loved to have done this outside in Ireland, but it rains here. Uh, so uh, we're here in Ireland in a hotel room, and I'm here with uh, Paul Bagadon. And we're here to talk about his, he's a member of the Order of Fire, of course, and we're here to talk about his new book. Uh, he did a, an illustrated version of Beowulf, uh, which he also reads. As Paul has the voice in, in the Order of Fire, uh, once he was telling us about uh, just his day, like almost a grocery list of things to do, and he's like, "Ah, oh, will you, when you go down to the store?" And it's, <laughs> it's it just sounds it sounded like a storybook. I'm like, I'm like you should do Beowulf it's someday. The, it's the accent. Yeah, yeah, it's the accent, but it's also your your delivery of things. You know, there's probably plenty of Irish people on the street, and I think if you pulled them all into here, they couldn't narrate a book necessarily so it's definitely the way you deliver and tell stories uh so we're just going to talk a little bit about beowulf uh you know classic of uh, you know western literature and um you know the, the process of doing this so paul actually you know if you read it look through it uh he also will put a link in the show notes uh what did you say then you Write a twenty thousand word essay on Beowulf. About twelve thousand words. About twelve thousand yeah. words. Okay. Just yeah. like a, it's an introduction to the story of Beowulf. It's on my website woodcurrent.net forward slash Beowulf. It's an introduction for people who may not be familiar with it, mm -hmm. and my commentary on what I think the symbolism in the story means and how it relates to modern life, and how we can take the wisdom that's in the story of Beowulf and apply it to our own lives, so that it's not just a story. You know, it's not just entertainment anymore. Mm -hmm. It's something that we can take and use to live better lives. And that's, that's sort of my approach to all of my writing, any essays I've ever written or books I've ever written. I try and take old stories, myths, legends, folklore, and I'll, uh, I'll try and draw parallels between the events in the story and the symbolism in the story and modern life so that we can actually read the story for entertainment, but also to gain wisdom. That's what I think the purpose of these old stories is. The ones that survive long enough through time, they survive because they have something to tell us about life and solving problems. So when I like read Beowulf or Havamal or whatever the story is, sure, I want to be entertained and I want to learn about the history and the people who wrote it and the time period that it was set in. But more important than all that, I want to know how to fix my problems in the modern world. And I don't think any problem I'm likely to have in my life is going to be any different to the problems they had a thousand years ago. We might have more like technology and different social situations, but people are people no matter when or where they lived and people have the same problems. So any problem I'm likely to have has been solved and people told stories about it. And over time, those stories get added to and dramatized and eventually you have Beowulf, which is a dramatic story about people solving problems. And that applies to me today in the same way it applied to Anglo-Saxons in Anglo-Saxon England. So uh, that's kind of where I approach these old stories from. And when I wrote, when I got working on this Beowulf Illustrated project, I've been reading Beowulf for years and writing about it for years. And I just want to share it with people who might not be exposed to it because it's not like a common thing. You don't, you don't learn it in school or anything. Right. But there's good stuff in there that relates to life that everybody can, everybody can get something out of it. Mm. But not everybody's going to read a thousand-year-old Anglo-Saxon poem. So I just tarted it up with some pictures. There's about 200 images in there. Some mm. people need that. You mm. know, they need images to relate to a story. So that's all I did with this poem. I wanted to narrate it so people could listen to it if that's their choice and illustrate it so that if you need pictures to connect to a story, then those pictures are there for you. And hopefully more people will just experience Beowulf as a result of this. All right. Well, a few of the things that you just said there, uh, I wanted to bring attention to. Uh, to begin with, everything you just said there is in the most compact version possible in uh, the song that you put out, Into the Light, uh, which is on our Order of Fire profile, uh, obviously done with our friend and member of the Order of Fire, uh, Frederick. Uh, he did the music. Paul did the, the poetry and vocals for it. And uh, it, really, it really got me when I listened to it because... You know, that's what it is. It, it's the best argument. It's the best short form argument you could possibly have for why I read the classics. And, uh, you know, it's just like, oh, well, there's you know, things that can uh, 
connect with you in real life. And, you know, these stories, the men who came before us, you know, they they show us the way, as you say in the song. So uh, that's a really important point. I would advise anyone to check that out. Uh, you know, that uh, that song, it really got it captured what part of what I do, I think. And that's one of the th reasons why it was so important to me is, you know, at some point, you know, I, w I was the modern guy who doesn't, you know, only cares about the modern world and, and so forth. Uh, I think until probably I was about 30 and I started reading some other books and it made me get into the stuff. And, and at some point people always ask me, why do I do the work that I do? And at some point I, you know, had this moment, it, that thing that you're talking about in the song, um, captured me. You know, I was like, there, there's this, there's this history of men in the world and it's bigger than us. And, uh, it, it captured me. I'm like to make other men connect with that became part of my mission as well. Uh, like this, this bigger thing, this, this is the ideal. This is where we want to go. Not just, you know, like every, everything old is stupid. Everything new is good. Uh, you know, this, this, this heroic spirit in men that all these stories captures is really what the motivation behind my work has been like this how do we connect these old guys to these to us and and become better this shows us how we could be better and um how do how do we make men see that so that's been part of my work the whole time so that's what i was like when i heard that i was like yes that so so definitely uh check that into the light out and Based on what you were saying as well, um, I didn't realize because I had never read it. I just knew it was something that you had written. We actually have a lot of guys in the Order of Fire who've written books, and I haven't read them all. Uh, but uh, I knew that you had done the Layman's Havamal. And I've read the Havamal, obviously, many, many times. I'm very, very probably more familiar with it than I am in both things. I mean, you know, I have parts of it that I can say at Old Norse just because I did it in ritual and so forth for years. And I had to go through it and uh, take apart the stories and figure out how I could say them in ritual to make them connect with the men that were there. So I have a pretty deep connection to the Havamal and, uh, you know, what this is, and I didn't realize, I thought it was just, I thought you just did an audiobook version of it, you know, and uh, I didn't realize as I was flipping through it when you gave me this copy um, the other day, is that you basically go through each verse and give your own interpretation of it. And like, here's how we can connect with it. And uh, so it's it's more than just, oh, here's just another version of the Havamal that's on the internet. Uh, it, it is a, there's an essay for pretty much every important set of lines in this. So I think that that's really worth uh, checking out as well, just to see, you know, if, even if it's not your perspective of that particular line, because that's the thing, we see these things and uh, just having dealt with heathens and so forth over the years. Yeah. They connect with a, a pair of lines and they take up the lines themselves, take up residence in their heads in a particular way. Yeah. And, you know, this thing that's just a few lines then takes on this whole meaning, you know, that they've they've worked out in their own heads. But, you know, I think even if you have a meaning for some of these that, uh, you know, this is another way that you're like, oh, I never thought of it that way. You know, so you could you could get into that as well. Um, it's it's fascinating. And that's the way I think we create meaning in the world. And that's so important for people to understand. This is I always hammer this home with people like, well, as as I joked, we're just dudes saying words. <laughs> hey, people have always just been dudes saying words. And, and so we add meaning to things in the world. You know, we create the meaning. And we are empowered to do that. That is what men do. So, you know, have, yeah. But let's, let's get to, so what do you think are some of the lessons that Beowulf has to offer? Obviously, it's all my interpretation. Other people's will differ. Mm -hmm. But I think it serves as a, first of all, first of all, briefly, we'll cover what it is. Because some people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Summarize it yeah. by all means. Yeah, we'll get to what I think it means. Okay, cool. So what it is, is Beowulf is a, a thousand-year-old Anglo-Saxon poem, so it's written in Old English. Mm -hmm. It survives to us in one manuscript, which was actually burned, so we're lucky to have it. It was burned in a house fire. Mm. Um, the house was called Ashburnham House, mm -hmm. which is funny. 
for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we're lucky to have it. But what it is, it's, it's basically a story about a young warrior who travels overseas to a foreign people who are actually his enemy. They have, they're like, there's conflict between his people and those people. But he travels overseas to fight a monster that has been plaguing this other people for 12 years. Mm-hmm. The monster is called Grendel. And at night, Grendel attacks the king's hall, kills anybody in the hall except for the king, and rules the hall by night. So Hrothgar is the king of the Danes. He's king by day, but by night, Grendel rules his kingdom. And Hrothgar can't control his own kingdom while Grendel is there. Because anybody that goes into the hall except the king gets murdered. Did people just stop going to the hall after a while? Because <laughs> well, <laughs> I remember the scenes and I'm like, everybody keeps coming. Yeah, but yeah. they go by day. But right. They know Grendel comes at night. Right. At night, Hrothgar, actually, because he's been emasculated, mm-hmm. he sleeps where the women sleep. Mm. So throughout the poem, you'll see, you know, Beowulf comes and his men stay in the hall to fight Grendel. Mm-hmm. And Hrothgar has a big party. But then when it gets dark, all the Danes leave because they know what's coming. Mm-hmm. And Hrothgar goes away with the women and sleeps in the women's quarters because he's mm. been emas- emasculated by Grendel. Mm. So Beowulf fights Grendel, rips his arm off. Grendel runs away into the night and bleeds to death. Mm. They have a big party the next day. Beowulf is the hero. Mm. The next night, Grendel's, Grendel's mother comes because Grendel has a mother like everybody else, mm-hmm. even though he's a monster. Right. And Grendel's mother comes and king kills the king's best friend, basically. Um, and drags his head away and goes back to her lair. She lives in a pool of monsters under a cave. So then Beowulf has to go into the dive to the bottom of the pool, kill Grendel's mother, which is no easy task because his sword actually melts when he tries to fight her and he has to find a a giant sword, a sword made by giants in the cave and then kill her with that. And then he takes Grendel's head because Grendel goes back to the cave and then he bleeds to death. He takes Grendel's head and brings it back to the king. He says the job is done. Grendel's dead. His mother is dead. Big party again. And they sail home as heroes loaded with treasure. Mm-hmm. Beowulf goes back to his people. They're called the Yeats or the Geats. Mm-hmm. Depends how you pronounce it. And he gives all, most of the treasure to his king because that's how it worked mm-hmm. in that culture. You're a warrior. You take treasure. You give it to your king. And he gives some of it back to you and some of it to all the other warriors because that's how kings worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then time goes by, Beowulf's king, he's called Higelac. He dies. His son becomes king. He dies. And then Beowulf is made king. Mm-hmm. And he rules as king for 50 winters, we're told. Mm-hmm. Until eventually a dragon breaks out of his hoard. Dragon lives in a, in a burial mound, a barrow, and he lives on a pile of treasure. And an escaped slave breaks into the horde, steals a cup, and the dragon is not happy. So he goes and he burns Beowulf's kingdom, his villages and towns. And Beowulf is old now, so he knows if he goes and fights this dragon, he's probably done for. Mm. So, But he does. He gets a, a, an iron shield made up because he knows a wooden shield won't do any good against a fire-breathing dragon. Mm. And uh, he brings his men to the dragon's mound, and he tells them to stay there. He says, this is my fight. You guys stay here. Mm-hmm. And he goes in alone, fights the dragon. And then at the end of the poem, there's one young warrior, a man called Wiglaf. He's actually Beowulf's cousin or nephew or something. Mm-hmm. He's not happy with this arrangement. A bunch of, you know, tough warriors standing outside in fear of the dragon while their king goes inside. So he's like, I know he told us to stay here, but what the fuck are we doing? You know, we're, we're the warriors. He gives us all of our gold, all of our armor, our weapons. We need to go and help. His warriors abandon him. Only Wiglaf goes. Mm-hmm. Everybody else hides in a wood. Wiglaf goes. He helps Beowulf kill the dragon, but Beowulf gets bitten and poisoned by a dragon. By the dragon, dragon dies. Beowulf is dying. He wants to see the treasure that he's he's won for his people. So Wiglaf like goes in and takes the treasure out, gives it to Beowulf before he dies, so he can see that his people will be well taken care of in future. Mm-hmm. And then he dies. And when the Geats take the treasure and bring it outside, it turns out there's a magical spell on it and it rusts. Mm. It turns to junk immediately. So now Wiglaf, he's sort of de facto king because he's Beowulf's cousin. He's the best warrior they have because everybody else ran away. Mm. So now he's in charge, but he realizes that Beowulf is dead. 
All of the warriors are emasculated and cowards. Their neighbors will find out about this. They don't have the treasure from the hoard because it's, it's turned to junk. Mm -hmm. So he realizes that his people are done for. They're going to get taken over in the future because the warriors can't defend them. They don't have resources and Beowulf is gone. So this is the end of Geats or the Yeats. And that's how the poem ends. It ends in sort of tragedy because the Yeats were a real people. They were a real Scandinavian group and they did disappear in history. Um, and the end of the poem is actually really, the final scene in the poem is really beautiful, I think, because Beowulf is burning on a funeral pyre. There's a, an unnamed woman beside the fire. It's implied that it's his queen, Higd, mm. but it's not stated. But there's an unnamed woman beside the, beside the fire crying and mourning for Beowulf's death, but also for the impending doom of her people because mm. she knows what's going to come too. And the, one of the lines in the poem says that heaven swallowed the smoke from Beowulf's pyre. Like mm. it, it devoured the smoke is the word in Anglo-Saxon. Mm. So Beowulf's smoke rises from the pyre and it gets swallowed by the sky. Mm. And he's gone, but his people will be gone too, just like the smoke that gets swallowed by the skies. Um, and that's the story of Beowulf. It's, it's basically, you know, monster story. It's a monster story, but it's set against the backdrop of real history. The people are real, like the Yeats were a real people. The Danes, they were a real people. There was a settlement called Herot, which is the hall of Hrothgar. Mm -hmm. Some of the characters are historically verified, like Higelac, mm -hmm. King Higelac of the Geats. He was historically verified as uh, dying in a raid in Frisia, we'll say, so modern Denmark, basically. So it's set against the backdrop of true history. But it's a monster story. And Beowulf is not a real historical character. He's more like a folkloric hero. Mm -hmm. The monsters are obviously not real characters. You don't know that. But it's great. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know. I'm guessing. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's this great merging of history and myth. Right. Which I love. Because, mm -hmm. you know, myth is one thing. Like Tolkien, I'm a big Tolkien fan. He made all of it up. But mm -hmm. he drew from, like Beowulf, he drew from real historical stories and made up his own story. Mm -hmm. But this story is half fantasy, but half reality. It's history with a fantasy story laid on top of it. Mm -hmm. And I find that really appealing. And it has something that it can, like it, it speaks to me, but I think it speaks to everybody, even people in the modern age who don't live in like Anglo-Saxon age, Scandinavia mm -hmm. or England or wherever. Because, I mean... We have monsters today, but mm -hmm. they're not like dragons and Grendel and Grendel's mother. Right. But every culture, every society, every time period has monsters, you know, antagonistic forces that want to tear everything apart. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, monsters arise, heroes have to arise to meet them. Like, they, like we don't get heroes unless we have monsters. Right, because the, one is, one is the heroes are known by their monsters. Like, what, otherwise, what did you do? Exactly. <laughs> they, they don't become heroes without monsters. This is why on the cover of this book, I have like an image of it's supposed to be Beowulf on the front and mm. Grendel on the rear. Mm. Because without Grendel, you don't get Beowulf. Right. Yeah. And without, you know, antagonistic forces in our lives, we don't get stronger. We don't overcome them, mm. you know. And these days, like the tendency these days, and I'm guilty of it too, is to like over psychologize all these old stories. Right. So, I mean, we could get Jungian and we could say that Grendel like represents things and his mother represent things. And I think that's true. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's dangerous to go too far down that rabbit hole, but it's a good framework with which to approach stories. Mm -hmm. And so when I read Beowulf, what I see in Grendel is the spirit of resentment or resentment mm -hmm. because Grendel lives, he's forced to live outside of Danish society. First of all, he's, he's said to be a descendant of Cain, the first, the first kinslayer. Right. So kinslaying is a big deal in all cultures, but especially in Anglo-Saxon England. Mm -hmm. So he's cursed by association to live outside the society. Mm -hmm. He can't become one of them. He has to sit in the wild in a cave with his mother, <laughs> mm -hmm. listening to the Anglo-Saxons or the Danes in Herod singing hymns. Yeah. And the first time that he raids Herod, what they're actually doing in the hall is they're having a party and they're singing, they're singing a thing called Cadman's hymn, which is an Anglo-Saxon version of the story of Genesis, mm. where the world is created. And when he hears this poet singing 
story of Genesis, he has enough. And he's like, this is it. And this is the first time he goes and attacks the Danes and he butchers them. And he does that every night for 12 years until Beowulf comes. So he's like this spirit of resentment who lives in the wilds. He sees people being prosperous because the Danes were the most powerful tribe in the area. Hrothgar built this huge hall of Herod because he subdued all his neighbors and he took their treasure and he used it to further his own people. So they're prosperous, but he's not. He lives in a cave in the wild and he can never become one of them. Mm. He sees those people doing well and he realizes he can't get it. So he just does what he can to tear it apart. It's interesting as well because he attacks by night, but he, he, the poem says he can't approach Hrothgar's throne in Herod. He can't go anywhere near it. He can't attack Hrothgar personally himself, but he kills all his men. Which is interesting because it's like there's this idea of divine kingship. Yes. And Grendel is said to be cursed by God. Mm -hmm. So he can't attack the throne, the symbol of Hrothgar's power. He can't attack the king himself, mm -hmm. you know, the man who's supposed to be anointed by the gods. And, but he can do whatever he wants in the hall to anything else except the throne and the king. So the culture falls apart around the king, but the king is sort of like cursed to witness it. Right. He doesn't get the easy way out of dying, fighting the monster. Mm -hmm. He has to watch it for 12 years. And this breaks Hrothgar, this spirit of resentment that gets into his kingdom. And he sees everything fall apart. He sees all his men killed by Grendel, the demon of resentment, we could say. Mm -hmm. He's forced to watch it happen until eventually Beowulf comes along. And Beowulf is just, he's the typical sort of like folkloric, heroic figure. He's actually sort of related to this trope in folklore, which is called the, the bear's son. This is the idea of these stories where like there's this kid, he's really strong, but he's dumb and useless. And everybody thinks he's just like, he's good for manual labor, but nothing else. Mm -hmm. And then eventually something happens and he gets to be the hero and he puts his strength to good use. Mm -hmm. And his people realize that he has value even though they thought he was useless all along. This is Beowulf. Beowulf is called, he's called sort of a wastrel by his own people before he leaves. Mm. He's, he's forced to sit at the back of the meat hall, even though he has the strength of 30 men. Mm. He's not respected or regarded by his own people. And we don't find that out until he actually comes back. And when he comes back after killing Grendel and Grendel's mother, everybody was like, you know, when you used to sit at the back of the meat hall, we all thought you were pretty useless, but you've shown us your worth now. You know, so there's this sort of folkloric element. That's a trope in folklore. It occurs in different cultures. The bear's son is what they call that trope. Interesting. And it applies to Beowulf as well. So Beowulf, he's this sort of like typical sort of heroic figure who responds to, you know, monsters or any kind of antagonism. He's the guy who says something needs to happen here and I need to make a name for myself. Let's go. He kills the spirit of resentment. He kills him by tearing his arm off, which is cool because it's sort of like, he makes him impotent because, you know, the hand is how you interact with the world. Yeah. How you do things in the world is through your hands. Right. You know, and of course through words and things, but symbolically your hand is how you affect change in the world. And he renders this spirit of resentment impotent by tearing off his arm. And then he bleeds to death because he can't do anything anymore. Mm. Then the mother is a different story. I think the mother, to me, I think the mother represents like people who get consumed by despair and they just give up and they want to tear things apart because Grendel's mother, first of all, I mean, what she's doing is actually, actually like socially acceptable in the culture of the time because blood feud was a thing. So if I kill somebody's son, their sacred responsibility is to get vengeance. Right. Most of the time that comes in paying a price. It's a wear guild, you know, you pay the gold price. Yes. Uh, in Irish culture, it was called an Eric and everybody had a different Eric depending on their value. And that's how you stopped, you know, blood feuds from escalating. But sometimes you just take blood instead of gold. And that's what her mother, that's what Grendel's mother does. She gets vengeance on the Danes by killing the man who was closest to the king. And, um, but I think she's, she embodies despair because she's like, she's lived in the wild with Grendel. But she doesn't give in to resentment. She doesn't go attack the hall with Grendel when he does. She goes after when, when she's like, she has grief and she just wants to tear things apart. There's interesting parallels there because we're getting young in here. So it's like, she lives at the bottom of a lake, a pool mm -hmm. in a cave right. and it's filled with monsters and snakes and serpents. And she's a woman 
And, you know, women have this sort of mythological resemblance, our connection to like water and the seas because mm. they're ever changing and there's like the moon and things like this. Yeah. And it's deep and men don't understand women. So it's like looking into a deep, dark pool and you can't see the bottom of it. Right. right. There's all this kind of interesting symbolism there that I find. And the well, only there's another thing that uh, I was going to say about that is it's just that Clinton pointed out to me many years ago. Uh, you know, I think most of the giants that Thor kills in mythology are female. I didn't know that. And uh, <laughs> like a lot of them are actually female. And and that when we think of all these giants and dragons, a lot of them have been signed female things all the way back to like Tiamat. Yes. You know, so it becomes it's it's not always the case, but uh, a lot of it has to do with men, women, and men not understanding women, and women kind of symbolizing chaos, and, and they, why would the chaos not be in the form of a woman, you know? So it's just an interesting, like, side thing that seems to happen mythologically yeah. through the years, so. Almost universally as well, though. Mm -hmm. So yeah. there's definitely something there. Yeah, yeah. And I think it applies here. I mean, she lives at the bottom of a lake. The lake is filled with serpents. Mm -hmm. You know, anyway. But um, the only way Beowulf can actually kill her is to go into the lake. So he dives into the lake. It's filled with monsters. He swims for a whole day to get to the bottom of this lake. No problem. If yeah. you're a hero, you just do that. Yeah, yeah. And when he gets down there, he fights the monsters, first of all, to get to her. And then she attacks him. And his, his, it's not his sword. He was given a sword by a, a guy called Unferth, who's a bit of a piece of shit. Mm -hmm. But uh, he gets given a sword by Unferth, and it fails him. It melts when he tries to use it. Mm -hmm. So he has to find a weapon in the cave and he finds a sword made by giants and it's carved with, it's called runes, victory runes, mm -hmm. carved into the sword. And with that sword that he finds in the deep, he kills the monster in the deep. Right. Symbolic, I think, because there's this, it's a Greek word, but it's like a, a myth, mythical trope. It's called katabasis. Mm -hmm. It means going down. It's going down into... When the Greeks used it, they were talking about coming from a high place, going to a low place, like moving towards the sea from the hills. Right. But what it means is going in the context of Beowulf, what I think it means is he has to go down into the depths of the monster's lair to fight the monster because mm. he can't fight the monster on his own ground. Not really. Right. Like if you really want to, you know, cut the heart out of the monster, you have to go where the monster is. Right. And he has to go down into her lair, into her water past her minions, her serpents. Mm -hmm. And he has to find something down there in the depths that will help him conquer her mm -hmm. and win. And he does. And like, if we over-psychologize that, I mean, we could all say that. It's like, a lot of people have problems with like mental illness and mental health and depression and despair and nihilism and these things. And the only way to get through it is to go down into it and see what's there. Right. And to get over it, to conquer it. Mm -hmm. And to come back out into the darkness, back into the light. Which he does. He kills... Grandel's mother kills the demon of despair, I would say. And he comes back up into the light. And it's funny, the scene where he comes up is funny because he was down there so long that all of the Danes, you know, the people who, they were so happy that he killed Grendel and he was the hero. They're gone because they gave him up for dead. Mm -hmm. And it's only his own men there. Uh, this is like, this is like another way they represent the Danes being like broken and fallen and emasculated. Right. They didn't wait for long. They were like, he's done for and they left. So it's just his own men. And um, so they all move back into the hall. And when he gets back to the hall, they're all drinking and partying because they think he's dead and Grendel is dead. So let's just have a party. And um, so they ha it's sort of a repeat thing. They have another party. They give him more treasure. They pay him more honor and respect. And then it's funny. The queen, Hrothgar's queen is like to Beowulf. She catches him when he's on his own. She's like, this is great. We really appreciate what you've done, but you guys are going home tomorrow, right? You're not sticking around right? because <laughs> we don't want to share our treasure or our kingdom with you. Right. You know, we appreciate what you've done, but go home. Yeah. It's funny. And the way it's portrayed, I think it's supposed to be funny because they, the story depicts the Danes in a really unflattering light. Mm -hmm. The language makes them sound like they're great. But when you see what they do, like they're broken people, they've mm -hmm. been broken by Grendel over the course of 12 years. Right. So Beowulf then, he does go home. He goes home to his own people, rich. He's got all this treasure from the Danes. Gives it to his king. His king gives him land and stuff. Mm -hmm. And he's elevated to a position of honor. And now he is the guy in his own people. Whereas before, they didn't really rate him very highly. They knew he was strong, but they didn't think he was good for much else. 
now he occupies a position of honor and esteem. And as time goes by and the king dies and the king's son dies, he becomes the king. Even though he doesn't really have any claim on the kingship, they make him king because he's the best man for the job. And then the dragon appears. And this dragon in Beowulf is a typical sort of Germanic dragon in the sense that it hoards treasure. Mm -hmm. And it's basically embodied at the embodiment of like greed and malice. Yeah. It hoards treasure and all it does is sit on it. It doesn't yeah. use the treasure for anything. Well, that's that's part of even a bigger Indo-European theme is uh, you know, the dragon Ritra in uh, the Vedic. He hoards the water. Yeah. And yeah, it doesn't say that he's doing anything with it. He just holds the water back. Yeah. So it's part of that bigger thing, but keep going. That's all he does. He mm -hmm. sits on his treasure. And actually the dragon is, it's not clear, but it's implied that the dragon was once a man, a powerful king mm -hmm. who hoarded treasure. His people all died out. He gave in to despair and he sat on his pile of treasure and waited for death. But he was consumed by this, like they call it dragon sickness. He was consumed by this dragon sickness and he became a dragon. Mm. And he just sat on his pile of treasure for centuries until this slave comes along, takes a cup and goes. And then he does what dragons do, which is burn things and poison things. So he's a typical Germanic dragon. He's the spirit of like greed and malice. Mm. And we see that all the time. People will hoard wealth and yeah. do nothing with it. Mm. Whereas the model of Anglo-Saxon kingship is to be a good king, a gold kuning in Anglo-Saxon, is you take treasure and you give it away to your men who, you know, they compete with each other to impress you so you will give them treasure. And this elevates them because they have to be impressive mm -hmm. and they have to win honor. And then you reward them. So wealth always flows up the hierarchy to, to the king and the king always gives it away back down the hierarchy to his men so they see that their efforts will be rewarded and they'll try harder in the future. Right. This is the model of good kingship and the dragon is the antithesis of that. Mm -hmm. He just takes treasure and keeps it. Mm -hmm. And we're told that Beowulf is a good king. Hrothgar was a good king until he sort of fell. But the dragon represents the other side of kingship, which is the tyrant who hoards things for himself. And so what Beowulf does is what heroes do. They kill the dragon because he is a good king and he recognizes first of all there's a dragon burning my realm i need to do something about that but he's the he's the remedy for that model of you know authority the dragon is a king of his own mound basically but he does nothing with it and all his people are dead so beowulf sort of liberates that treasure now it turns out the treasure is cursed and as soon as they take it out of the mound it's no good to anybody but this is what you know this is what good leaders do it's like they don't they take the spoils of being in charge but they don't keep it all right they use it to bring other people up almost like the sun <laughs> i mean that's the model of, of, yeah. of the thing is like well you you don't just you're not just by yourself you create enough light and warmth to support all the people around you like they're they're made better by being around you yes and that's that's what positive masculinity is and that's what uh, solar idealism is kind of based on is the uh, this idea that you know any good leader really like the people who are drawn into his circle they all rise up and they do all do better and i would say the difference the opposite of being this kind of black hole where it just kind of sucks them all dry this vampiric kind of energy that just because there are leaders who then just kind of suck everyone around them and take from them and just take and uh but being a good leader is to inspire people and to make them better and bring them up and uh, bring out the best of themselves and uh, to you know, obviously reward them like that. They, they get something from being around you. And that's what you want to aspire to, whether you're the leader of a household or a company or a kingdom is that. So, yeah. And the Anglo-Saxons are like, they really hammer this point home because they have like, you know, kennings, like nicknames for people. Mm -hmm. And a common kenning for a king is ring giver. You yes. Know, ring like a, a golden ring or an arm ring or some piece of treasure. Yeah, yeah. He gives it to people. Another one is a ring scorner. Right. He scorns rings. Mm. He's like, he has treasure, but he doesn't want it. He, he, like, he doesn't want it because he gives it away. It's like he scorns or disdains treasure. Mm -hmm. Because that is the model of a, an Anglo-Saxon king. Mm -hmm. It's like, we take wealth from, you know, our enemies or wherever. And we bring it to the king, and then he will reward us for that effort, mm -hmm. which will encourage us to do it again. 
So fatherhood is kind of the same thing. It's like, you know, you want to be the guy who elevates your family. You can be a tyrant father in the same way you can be a tyrant king. Mm -hmm. And you can just suck the life out of your family. But that's not the model that we should aspire to. Right. We should aspire, aspire to like the Beowulf style of leadership, which is to elevate his people. Mm -hmm. uh, Hrothgar did that in the early days, but then he was broken by Grendel. Mm -hmm. Hrothgar is called a good king, a good kuni. Mm -hmm. But when we see him, he's fallen. And there are a lot of sort of like side stories that they will tell during the tale of kings who were the tyrant kings who hoarded treasure. And I think that's all building up to the, the dragon at the end. Because right. Hrothgar will like tell Beowulf stories about greedy kings. And he's like, you know, Hrothgar, Hrothgar says to Beowulf, it's like, when you go home, you're going to become a man of influence. You're going to become somebody important. And maybe someday you'll be the king. Remember, this is how kings behave. You don't want to be like this other guy who kept all his treasure. Bled his people dry. It's like, you need to be the good king, the goat cooning. And so all of the, this point is constantly hammered home. It's like, good leaders elevate people. Yes. They don't suck the life out of them. They don't become dragonish. Right. You know, and hoard everything for themselves. And I mean, how many tyrants have we seen and dictators in the past hundred years who did exactly that? Yeah. It's all about them. Mm. And, you know, the imperial cult in Rome had this to a certain sense, because the emperor claimed all glory. Mm. Every battle that the legions won, it was glory to the emperor. You know, right. He was the god of the people. And so glory flowed upward to the emperor, which inspired people. And, you know, that was good too. But it was like, all glory can't belong to one man. The man who receives glory needs to share it with other people. Right. Otherwise, what happens is, what happens to the, uh, the Geats at the end of Beowulf, where all the men are emasculated, because mm. Beowulf was protecting them his whole life. Mm subduing their neighbors, keeping them away because they all heard the story of Beowulf and they knew he was strong and a good king. So nobody messed with the Geats while he was alive. And his men became emasculated over time mm -hmm. and couldn't defend themselves when he died. And this was the end of the Geats. So there's an interesting sort of twist on the story as well because Beowulf is a good king, but he, you know, he is the gold kuning who shares treasure and stuff, but maybe he shares too much of the burden of keeping his people safe because they can't defend themselves when he's gone. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a temptation with leadership. Uh, you know, it's hard to empower other people to go out and do work that, you know, like if you feel like you should do everything, I struggle with this, <laughs> you know, like I want to do everything. And uh, really you have to give other men an opportunity to take leadership roles and to, to rise up in that way. Um, you know, because it, it creates that kind of balance and it doesn't make it ever ill, Ill on you. And it also gives them a reason to invest because they, okay, well, I can do a thing. You know, I can, I can take responsibility and, and uh, prove myself because every man wants to prove himself. I mean, you know, that's, that's what we've always done to become part of the gang or whatever. To, 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 you know, it can't just be the one guy. You, you have to have an opportunity to prove yourself in your own life. Uh, so. And the... Uh the Grendelian spirit of resentment is like the flip side of that. He's like, I don't care what they think of me, mm -hmm. you know? And when you give up on earning the respect of other men, right? this is like, res resentment leads to that. Uh, and this is when you become a monster, basically. Yeah. It's like, it's not just that you need to care what other men think about you. Yeah. It's that you need some sort of a standard to hold yourself to, and it needs to be higher than you are likely to achieve, you know, you need to have some sort of high and lofty standard that may be impossible to achieve, but you move toward it. Right. But if you give up on all standards and you give up on the judgment of other people mm -hmm. and honor and respect, you're a loner in the wilderness like Grendel. You're an outsider and all you can do is tear things down. Yeah. You basically, I mean, that's, that's kind of the sickness of the modern world and the sense that there are no collective values and there's no investment in becoming better and people have given up on that the honor in any sense and that's you basically create a subversive element like i always say we've seen that with the arts it's like well if you push all those guys out to the edge of the village yeah. They're going to create something that's subversive that's going to come back to you, uh, and that's what we've had. I mean, we you know everybody's like, uh, we don't need artists and you know whatever. And then you send out artists, and what do they do? They make art that's poisonous, and that's what we've been having for the past like hundred years, I would say. And the, and uh, that happens in so many other ways. If you don't 
you know, if there's no investment in kind of the community um, and no investment in masculinity and higher ideals, then you have men who are a all for themselves and don't share anything. Uh, and B, they just become destructive and, and angry and hateful. Like, uh, you know, the, we've been talking a lot lately about the, the men who just want to see the world burn. Yeah. You know, they don't, they don't really care what happens. Yeah. Uh, they just want to see suffering because they, they are suffering in some way inside and they've, they've internalized that to a point. So they just want to see suffering in others and they just don't care. Yeah. And uh, it's, it becomes very sociopathic. And that, that's what we've seen, I think, a lot in the modern society. And that's, you know, if we don't have higher ideals, that's what we get. And, uh, you know, our solution isn't necessary to just, everyone wants our solution to be, to go back to some other form of higher ideals and like find the, find the way that we're supposed to do it. The exact way of some other people that came up with those solutions at some other time. And really it's, we are empowered now to create our own, like, what do we think are the best ideals? And, uh, you know, because if, if you don't have that, you just become a poisonous human being. Yeah. One of the things that jumped out to me in your conversation about uh, Beowulf that I didn't really notice before, and it's been a long time since I read it personally, but the idea of Beowulf being stupid and maybe a little bit naive. And, uh, and uh, Christopher Robertson and I have talked a lot about that. And that's something that worries me about the hero archetype is that... If you become, if you get too far into to manhood and to the point where you see how things work in the world, and they've always worked that way, <laughs> you know, like there's always been, there's always been greed and corruption yeah. and all these things. I mean, that none of them are new. And so you become a little bit more hesitant and you become a little bit more like, I don't know, cynical. you know, a little, a little cynical, but even, you know, we don't have to put a negative spin on it. Uh, it's just as, as an older man, I think you just become to a place where like, um, well, that's not always true. And there's this th thematic thing that young men have many times that they're like, this is what is right. And I must do what is right. <laughs> Whereas you get older, you're like, eh, it's right sometimes, but I don't know if it's always right, <laughs> you know, but you, you, this is what is right. And I must do it. And that is really the spirit of heroism. I mean, you can also say it's about glory and whatever. And there's this whole argument that goes on right now that the heroism isn't all about glory. And, but I think the pure, beautiful heart of heroism that I saw when I started looking at these things that is, is that young man who is, he just wants to do what's right. And that's really kind of the most beautiful thing in the world, you know, but it is so easily manipulated by, you know, bad leaders and so forth. And people who just want to make that guy do something for them, for their own benefit. And it's not like they all haven't always been doing that. You know, like, like why do men go to war? Usually because old men want things, <laughs> you know, like that's usually been the case. But, you know, we also can't, we can see that the spirit of heroism is somewhat naive but necessary because otherwise no one will do that job, you know, like, and th those guys. So it's, I'm very protective of that spirit in men because it is a beautiful thing. Um, even if it's easy, it is easily misguided, but, uh, you know, I, I've called it before with the, uh, uh, the organ grinder of Thumos. Basically there are guys, there's a guy who's going to come out and be like, you should be mad at those guys. And we are right and they are wrong and, and uh, get everybody going and get them and to the point where they're really willing to throw themselves at something because men do want to do that. Young men want to throw themselves at something. And so I think the challenge is to find people who are doing that responsibly. I mean, it is a good power to have, but uh, there's so many people who use it and take advantage of men. And I see that just so much in the online world. And so what they're, they're guys who just want to rile men up and send them to their doom for their own entertainment, yeah. you know, and, and that's, that, that's really concerning to me. I just see that so much of the world. So but that's, that's just, you made me think of when you're talking about Beowulf and kind of being just strong. I mean, Thor is portrayed in that way. just is kind of being like a little dumb. Yeah. Funny. Yeah. Yeah. Dumb, fun and goofy. And we can, we can, you know, our friend Clinton, he, he, he's done a lot of research and like, well, you know, maybe Thor wasn't actually perceived that way in his time. And that's a, that's a later development. 
Um, but you know, yeah, Hercules or Heracles, that's a similar thing, not really seen as, you know, like the, the sharpest tool in the door, you know, but, uh, has that, you know, heroic spirit. So the Irish have that as well. There's a, mm -hmm. a, there's a character called Ondagda, which means the good God. Mm -hmm. He's kind of a Heracles figure, uh, Thor kind of figure, but mm -hmm. there's a lot of stories that make fun of him where he gets drunk and gets naked and he gets into trouble and it's like, he's the strongest guy. He wields the club that can kill his enemies, but also bring people back to life. Mm -hmm. And, um, but he's like fearsome and respected, but he also gets into all kinds of like comedic situations. Right. And there's that, I don't know what that says about heroism in general, but like, there needs to be an element of like naivety to heroism because we can overanalyze anything. Yes. We could sit here while the city burns and we could say like, maybe the city should burn, you know, maybe we deserve this. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or we could just get up and go, you know, right. and fight the fire or fight the invading horde or whatever the situation might be. Yeah. Because somebody needs to say, forget all that intellectualization. Yes. Here's a problem. Let's go do something about it. Right. Because it's right. Yeah. And maybe I'm wrong, but I think it's right. So let's go. Somebody yeah. needs to have the balls to stand up and say that and do that. Because there will always be 10 other men who just sit in the back and talk about it. Right. And while they talk, the city will burn. Exactly. And this is why like, we can, we can respect our enemies, even though they're our enemies, mm -hmm. because we recognize that same spirit of heroism in them. It's just, it's targeted at us, but it's the same spirit. Absolutely. That we target at them. Yeah, and if you don't recognize that, you're, you're naive. <laughs> you know, you're, you're too wrapped up in, in the propaganda, uh, thematic you know, thing that, uh, oh, oh, they're bad and we're good. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's important to be able to see that, uh, you know, like now in politics, you know, everyone wants to make it like Russians are evil. It's just some guy. Yeah. It's some guy who grew up in one place that you didn't grow up yeah. in. And he, they, you know, so they're sending them out to do things and he's going out to do a job just like the other guys. Yeah. And, and we can see that in the world. And I guess, men throughout history have really lived in a very insulated space where those guys really are the bad guys and there is an us in them. Mm -hmm. And we have this high seat view because we can see all these stories in history and we can see, we can sit back in our lives of comfort and, and see that that's happening. But yeah, you do have to have that spirit of like, I believe that this is right, but it might be wrong, but let's go do it. Yep. Um, because something has to happen. Action has to be taken. Otherwise, you just have a bunch of men sitting around talking, like you said, as the city burns. Yeah. And there's courage in that. There's courage in it, not only because you go and you do something and you risk your life, but there's courage in accepting that you might be wrong, but you're going to go do it anyway, and you'll accept the consequences. If it turns out that you were wrong, mm -hmm. you went and you did what you thought was right. And if you're wrong, you're wrong, and you can deal with that later. But there's courage in just taking a stand and saying, this is what I think is right. I'm going to go do something about that. And if I'm wrong, I'll deal with that later. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. But somebody needs to be able to make a decision and say, this is what I'm going to do and go and do it. Because you can, like a lot of people are just afraid to make a decision because they think they'll be wrong. Right. But making no decision, as they say, is worse than making the wrong decision. Yeah. One of the, uh, you know, scariest things I think about modern society is the way that, you know, like obviously they've commandeered the media and, and so forth. So really, I mean, uh, this could be read the wrong way, so I'm going to be careful, but because uh, I'm not ready to say, <laughs> I'm not ready to go fight the fire, the, that dragon right now. Uh, but uh, anyone who stands up and does something that most people want them to do, you know that they will absolutely be vilified and, and they, will, they won't be called a hero in public. They will be, you know, derided and taken down. And, and because we have people in, in power and also in people who are power adjacent, um, you know, the media and so forth. I mean, they're, they're very profit driven and they love to see a hero destroyed. Um, you know, I think there's, there is a spirit, I think in the ancient world of the, like, we want to, you know, find a hero and elevate him and tell stories about him because we need heroes. But I think so many people who write or some of the people who were you know, involved in like the media and mainstream culture are the cynical poisonous character who just want to see someone taken down. 
Because, you know, and we all have it a little bit. I was saying, we, we went to Con Conor McGregor's bar the other day, and I was saying to somebody, like, you know, when someone is f f just a braggart, and they they yes, they win at everything, but they they are you know, just full of that spirit, like, no one could get me, and I'm like, uh, everyone kind of wants to see them take it down. Yeah. You know, like, and, but uh, we need those those guys as well. You know, like, who will go out, the guy who will go out and do something. You know, we've you know talked about, uh, men that we know uh, who have done the thing at the moment and we both know who I'm talking about I think but uh, <laughs> uh, they've made some bad choices since but <laughs> the man who does the thing in the moment yeah. is, that everyone wants to do is the hero and you know it, it is a scary thing in modern society that where is the media that's going to elevate that Yeah, because then the, the media that elevates that that becomes complicit and, it, and that's that's dangerous as well. Yeah. So. There's a there's a character in Beowulf mm -hmm. who represents that. Who represents that? I think he's Unferth is his name, mm -hmm. which means unfriend. Okay. He's not friend, and he's not Beowulf's friend. So his job in the Danish court is he's like the advisor to King Hrothgar. He's a warrior as well, but as Beowulf points out, he hasn't got the courage to face Grendel. Mm -hmm. He's also a kinslayer. He killed his brother which is a big deal in, in Anglo-Saxon culture and Germanic culture in general. But yet he's permitted to be the king's advisor. And he challenges Beowulf when Beowulf says, I am the guy who's going to take care of this. He says, I'm the guy who's going to take care of this problem. And Unferth says, no, you're not. I heard about you and you're nothing special. You're not very impressive. But Beowulf does the right thing. He doesn't beat Unferth. He doesn't like grapple him and force him to like acknowledge his heroism. Mm -hmm. All he does is he talks to him and he points out Unferth's flaws about cowardice and kinslaying. Mm -hmm. And he says, watch and see what I'll do. Right. And then he does it. And I mean, if you stand up and you try and do anything in the modern world, somebody will say, it's a waste of time, or you're not the guy, or it's wrong, yeah. or whatever. And the, like, the appropriate response to that is not to kill them. Mm -hmm. The appropriate response to that is to talk to them and say, watch. Right. You know, just watch me. Right. And we can judge afterwards mm -hmm. who's heroic and who isn't. Yeah. And then go and do it. So, yeah, I think there's just so many par parallels to, like, modern problems in the book, despite the fact that it's over a thousand years old. I mean, it was written down a thousand years ago. But it, it comes from a long oral tradition. So who knows how old this story is? Right. And this probably evolved. I mean, obviously, you said there's references to Genesis and so forth. And it's probably an older story than that. Absolutely. And so that gets added in as, as context when it needs to be for that particular society. Um, and we see that with so many other things. We've talked uh, about, uh, obviously, the, the Tong uh, as that being, you know, something a story that was probably older and even from a different culture than, you know, that just kind of evolved and like took some biblical elements in some areas and so forth, just because that's what happened to that culture. But, and we have to make stories relevant as time moves on. Yeah. So we have to update them and add things in or take things away. Exactly. To keep them re relevant. Exactly. And that's kind of the, it's a, an exciting task in a way. Like I've, I've often pointed out and maybe I'll put it in the notes if I listen, look through this and find this, comment but um there's this great graphic novel redoing you know the story of hercules in the future that i've pointed out many times that you know it's like he's in space and <laughs> you know like and the olympian gods are like these controlling figures and, and uh uh but you know and hera has this vendetta against him and she makes him kill his family and it's it's accurate to the whole story um, but he's just going and killing these like technological monsters and so forth that she's set out for him. And, and, and so very much the same story, but it's just been updated yeah. in a way that it can capture the modern mind in, you know, cause you know, the landscape is different, you know, but, uh, the story is really the same and there's so many opportunities for taking that. And, and a lot of, to be, to give credit where it's due, a lot of classic films, uh, in the modern era are really are, retellings of old stories aside from the ones that are explicitly retellings you know like uh, you know th that's the movie troy or something like that um you have those i mean they did a version of beowulf that was kind of wasn't it mostly animated or something like that there's a few movies yeah but that yeah. one is all cartoons yeah. yeah 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 so i mean the ones that explicitly tell the story i mean they have their own value but they're also 
retellings where they've taken, you know, I've seen lots of movies where they've taken a Shakespeare and then updated it and put it in a modern context. And uh, you can do that so often. Obviously, you're going to change details and so forth. But uh, I think that's a really good creative challenge for a lot of people. Like, you know, how would you rewrite that now? Yeah. You know, like, and make it relevant. And it, it's hard. But uh, I think that I would love to see more men take up that challenge as to, like, let's take the story of Beowulf or part of the story of Beowulf or part of, uh, you know, story of, uh, you know, Perseus or something and update that and make it relevant and, and uh, bring it in the modern world without having to destroy it. Because because the tendency, obviously, in the modern world is to, like, let's do it and impose kind of a woke agenda on it and destroy the story in the, in the process of doing it. But could you retell it in the original spirit? And I think that that's a challenge, the creatively out there. And that's really what, I mean, I think the creative challenge of solar idealism is, is just to, like, can we do that? Uh, can we keep these stories alive by reinvigorating them and bringing them back without trying to destroy them and be like, oh, well, the modernity is so much better than, than all these foolish people in the past. Can we keep that same spirit alive and move it forward? You have to take the best of what you've got and mm-hmm. carry that into the future. Absolutely. And like you have to do that with stories, but you have to do that with people as well. I mean, if you have like any group that you live in, yeah, you have to take the people that turn up and try and find the best in them mm-hmm. and bring that out. Yes. So you take the best of the stories, but you take the best of the people around you too and try and further what's good in them so that maybe they leave behind what's, you know, resentful or if they have despair or nihilism or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever you don't want to see moving into the future, you try and encourage people to leave that behind and carry the best part of themselves forward. And I try and do that with myself, but also with like my family and my friends and things. And one of the tools that allows me to do that is to study these old stories and see what is the best in people. Mm. You know, where is the heroism? Where is the courage? Where is the glory? How do you spot it when you see it? How do you recognize it? Mm. And we have models for all that in the stories. Yeah. So every time you read Beowulf, it's like you're training yourself to see heroism in somebody else or to see resentment in somebody else mm. or greed or malice or whatever. And uh, that's the approach I take to these stories. It's like take the best out of the past and carry it into the future. Yeah, that's, I think, something we can take away from this generally in this discussion and and all this. And, uh, you know, it's great to put that out there. So, again, this is, you know, it should be out soon. Uh, In the next couple of weeks, hopefully. Next couple of weeks. I mean, I might try and time it closer to when we release this to when it comes out. Uh, But, uh, you know, this is a great edition of Beowulf. It's all illustrated. and You won't be able to see this uh, because of the lighting, probably. But... uh, uh, you know, this kind of use AI, and that's again another way we've brought things into the future. Well, you know, I mean, you're not an artist or a painter, like the, in that way. So, but you're like, oh, I can use AI to to tell this story, and this is some. I don't know how you got that out of AI. Like some of these things. I mean, I've, it's you've done some great work here, um, getting it to to show what it needed to show, um, because that's that's quite a challenge sometimes. Yeah. I've done a lot of AI stuff as well. But, um, yeah, there's some, some great images here and, uh, yeah, and use this technology to bring these ideas forward. I mean, we always talk about technology possibly being evil or bad or whatever, and uh, that may be true. But, uh, you know, we can, again, use the good in it. You know, any tool, I guess, can be good or bad, you know. And so if we can use it for good like that, then that's worth doing. And uh, so this is a, a fantastic addition to that, that process. And uh, again, uh, also the Leibniz Hobble model, uh, I think, would be interesting for a lot of people who are interested in Germanic, uh, Germanic mythology and, and so forth. Uh, but also the Hobble model is, is a great standalone, you know, if you don't even care about, you know, the, the you know, that's why I call Norse it, gods, you know. That's why I call it the Leibniz Hobble model, because yeah. all of my commentary is for people who may or may not even know what the Hobble model is. Right. It's the layman's have them all for the layman. Yeah. Not the specialist in Old Norse poetry. Right, right. Or the heathen or the Viking reenactor. It's yeah, yeah. for normal people with normal lives. And right. I'm trying to take the wisdom in this Old Norse text and apply it to the the normal person, the average person who may or may not even care about Havamal itself. Well right. they may care about wisdom. 
Right. I mean, it's it's part of the long tradition of wisdom literature. Yeah. It is that you know, in the way that uh, you know a lot of they has a lot of old. I'm going to pick the old, the wrong old Greek name, but uh, the, I think it's Heraclitus. Uh, but it's not that one. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> like uh, there, there are some books that are just like you know statements. Yeah. You know, like statements in the way that this has just like kind of statements about yeah. life and and uh, um, yeah. I think Hesiod is is the mythological one of them, yeah. but I think he also works in days, which is I believe, and and that's uh, wisdom literature as well. Yeah. Um, and you'll find the same wisdom. In many of the cultures, like, you know, the same little phrase that they like some old guy who's lived a lot of life sat down and wrote like, here's what I think is good. Here's what I think is bad. I mean, the, the Hagakura from the samurai is another one that, you know, he's an old samurai. who's was like, this is how a samurai behaves. This is how you should be. And, you know, in there, there's wisdom that can be applied to normal life. So uh, there's there's a big tradition of that uh, going through, you know, just culture in the world. And uh, the Havamal is just part of that. You know, like, uh, you know, get up early if you want to make money is yeah. basically, it, it's pretty, or pretty universal. <laughs> yeah. If you want to make money or kill somebody, like, you better get up early. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you want to, if you want to win, you know, you better get up early. I mean, yeah. that's it's just basic things like that are in, in the Alamo that, uh, you know, pertain to no culture. Uh, they just pertain to human life and human wisdom. So these are all valuable things. Uh, you know, I encourage you to pick them up and, uh, so, man, it's been great uh, being in, here in Ireland, uh, going out into the Irish countryside. We saw some 5,000-year-old uh, um, uh, passage tombs and, uh, you know, got to see some really ancient culture and, and go out and experience the, the, the uh, landscape and the rain. And, and uh, you know, it was, it, it's been a great time being here in Ireland with you and uh, with you and the other guys in the Order of Fire. And so, anyway... Uh, all right. Uh, thank you guys for watching and stay solar. Stay solar. Pater is the cultural arm of the Order of Fire. For more, visit ph2t3r.com.